Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. And before we begin the show here, we wanted to announce our latest live event at the New York Historical Society on Wednesday, June 5th. We hope you'll join us as we interview the author of Gay New York, George Chauncey, in a discussion called Gay New York Before Stonewall. Just in time for the June celebrations of World Pride and the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots. For more information and to get tickets head to the website of the New York Historical Society. That's nyhistory.org. And we hope to see you on June 5th, 2019. Episode 290 of The Bowery Boys. Bagels. The whole story. Hey, it's The Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for The Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And Greg, we are about to bite into a subject that is legendarily New York. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the bagel, and especially New York's relationship to the bagel. When did the bagel come to New York? How did its popularity rise? And how did it become such a mainstay for all New Yorkers? And then how did that appreciation spread worldwide? The bagel actually has a very fascinating history. And here in New York, it traces to the Lower East Side and to the thousands of newly arrived immigrants who lived there. It's also a story about America's changing tastes in the 20th century and how mainstream America actually adopted the bagel as one of its favorite foods. I know that a lot of you will take this story quite personally. And that many of you listening not only have your favorite bagel, but your favorite style of bagel, whether it be sesame or egg or pumpernickel. And of course, you have your own personal tastes in terms of spreads or schmears. Right. You might even have your own strong opinions about what should or shouldn't be done to a bagel. You know, don't get us started about whether or not it should be toasted. Or sliced St. Louis style. Oh, you mean hacked? (laughs) Blasphemy. But of course, as you've just referenced, Greg, this isn't just a New York City story. And and bagels have become very popular in other parts of the country, of course, today, and in other parts of the world that never knew a bagel before. So we'll get to that in the story as well. But I'm curious, Greg, before we dive into the, the story, because we all kind of have our own bagel stories, do you remember in your life when you first ate your first bagel? Well, actually, when I moved to New York City in the early 90s, I had no knowledge of what a real bagel was. I had Uh those, you know, frozen varieties. But 
it was Essa Bagel, which was over in Murray Hill, and I lived nearby there. Was my kind of first was my first taste in bagels, and you know I have been hooked ever since. And that is fortuitous because at the end of this show, we will be visiting Essa Bagels' uh, location on the east side, up on 50th Street. We will be getting a guided tour and speaking with the owners about how bagels are made and about what it's like to run a bagel mm-hmm. shop in 21st century New York. Now, Tom, what is your first experience with the bagel in New York? Uh, in in New York, well, when I moved here as well in 93, Columbia, where I was going to school, there was a great bagel shop up there called Columbia Bagels. It's no longer open. So I think those were my first New York bagels. But in 1995, I actually ran a business during the summer back in Ohio where I imported bagels from H&H Bagels in New York. And I, I transported them for at first by myself in a Jeep Cherokee. <laughs> Dr- I drove them 530 miles back to uh, Lake Erie and sold them in a bagel shop that I opened and called Brooklyn Bagels. On one occasion, I do actually remember loading up your car, going to H&H Bagel yeah. and loading up your car full of onion bagels and right. things like that. And and to be sure, these were not fully baked bagels. The, the H&H would actually half bake them. So they would make them and then half bake them and then freeze them and sell them in big boxes. And then you could take them like, you know, in a supermarket deli or in a stand in Ohio. You could take them, thaw them out overnight and then bake them fresh quote unquote, the next morning. So people in Northern Ohio, were eating real H&H bagels. And we'll be talking about H&H bagels at the end of the show. We have a lot to cover. So join us as we look at the whole history of New York City and the bagel. So, Tom, how are you going to situate us in this particular case? Because this is a this is a food product, not a location. That's right. So, I I brought along a prop. Now, mm-hmm. listener, I'm sorry you can't you can't see it, but hold on, I have a little bag here. I am taking out Greg and everything bagel. And uh, this podcast will be like that bagel, and that it will be overstuffed and covered with <laughs> sesame seeds and stale within a couple hours. <laughs> I just picked it up at, at my neighborhood bagel maker. But as defined by the Encyclopedia of New York City, a bagel is, quote, a ring-shaped roll first produced in Poland in the 17th century, made with malt rather than sugar and high-gluten processed flour, then boiled and baked for a crisp outer crust and a chewy inside. Although I think we could say that New Yorkers have experienced many bagels along the edges of that particular description, rather too large or too small or done in different ways. Yeah, and bagels come in all shapes and sizes. Now, if you'll indulge me, actually, one more definition from 2003 included in a New York Times article written by Ed Levine. A bagel is a round bread made of simple, elegant ingredients, high gluten flour, salt, water, yeast, and malt. Its dough is boiled, then baked, and the result should be a rich caramel color. It should not be pale and blonde. A bagel should weigh four ounces or less and should make a slight cracking sound when you bite into it instead of a whoosh. 
A bagel should be eaten warm and ideally should be no more than four or five hours old when consumed. I mean, that is that is so specific. Uh, is, is there a Westminster bagel show <laughs> in which those rules are applied? There should be. <laughs> I'm sure there are bagel competitions of some kind. But but there is one detail here that needs repeating. Uh, needs. See, there's really no shortage of these <laughs> no, puns. We're going to just stumble over them accidentally. Sorry. But these definitions point out what makes a bagel a bagel, and that is that the dough is first boiled in water, and then it's transferred to an oven where it's baked. So that results in an interior that's chewy and an exterior that has this distinct, like, hard crust. And as mentioned in that definition from the Encyclopedia of New York City, they did indeed come from Poland in the 17th century. Well, if not before, because the, the bagel's origins are kind of shrouded in some mystery and probably no shortage of myth-making. As the book The Bagel, The Surprising History of a Modest Bread by Maria Belinska points out, Belinska goes into great detail about the bagel's potential early relatives. You know, there were these ring-shaped breads that go all the way back to, like, the Roman Empire days. And by the Middle Ages, Italians were baking ring-shaped bread called tirali and later cimbele. But none of what you described, as delicious as I'm sure that they were, were actually bagels. No, for that we have to go to Poland. Now, in the 14th century, we'll first find a mention of something called the Obvarzanek, which was a lean bread that was made with wheat flour and it was boiled and then it was baked. And that was not a bagel? No, no. because these were made by Christians. These were not, a, this was not a Jewish bread. In the bagel book, Belinska points out that there's this legend about the bagel's ninth century Jewish beginnings. Because back in the day of the Prussian Empire, rulers mandated that only Christians could eat baked breads. That led the Jewish residents here to figure out a way to make bread without baking it, because they weren't allowed. So they came up with a boiling method. And over the years then, that method would be expanded to also incorporate a kind of finishing stage, a final stage in the oven. So what happened in the 17th century? Well, in 1610, we actually see the first real reference. There's the first law that's made in Poland that regulates bagel sales. It, it explicitly mentions bagels mm -hmm. and regulates when and how they're to be sold. And then there's this whole legend, though, about the king of Poland in the 1680s, a man named Jan Sobieski. Now, he was already beloved by the Jewish bakers because he he loosened restrictions and allowed for Jewish baked goods to be sold inside of Krakow. So that really helped sort of spread their, their popularity. But then he became this huge military hero in 1683 when he famously saved Vienna from a Turkish invasion. From this, we get a legend that bakers first made bagels as a tribute to Sobieski and called them bugles, <laughs> which in Austrian-German means Stirrup. That is to say, the bagels were formed in the shape of Sobieski's stirrups that he wore. It seems more probable that the word comes from the Yiddish word bagel, which comes from bugel, which in a German dialect means ring or bracelet. Or there's also a theory, according to Joan Nathan in her book Jewish Cooking in America, that the word bagel comes from the German verb bagen or to bend. 
because ah, the dough is yeah. bent. The bagel's popularity would spread throughout the 18th century in Poland, but by 1795, Poland would be divided up by its neighbors, the Austrian Empire, Russia, and the Kingdom of Prussia. And the country would actually cease to exist until after World War I for nearly 125 years. So in essence, there's a Russian Poland, a Galician Poland, which is the area of today's Ukraine, and a Prussian Poland, which is the area of Germany. And during the 19th century then, throughout these lands, the bagel's popularity would grow in the villages and then also in the cities, cities that would be booming, especially during the Industrial Revolution. Now, we obviously do not know where the first bagel was seen in the United States of America, but we do know that we can thank a wave of Polish immigration that started in the early 1870s. Between 1870 and the 1920s, an estimated 1.5 million Polish immigrants came to the United States, most of them fleeing political persecution as ethnic minorities. And these Jewish immigrants who are arriving in New York City, they're bringing with them all kinds of skills, including bagel making, and they're also bringing with them their culture and their language. Yes. Many of them spoke Yiddish. New York did have a Jewish population before this time. As we mentioned in our Emma Lazarus show from last year, there was actually a large population of German German Jews here who had arrived in the 1840s and 1850s. But by this period, the 1870s, many of them had worked their way out of neighborhoods like the Lower East Side to become part of, ingrained in the fabric of New York society. They had not spoken Yiddish. No, but these new arrivals, the Eastern European Jewish people, who were much poorer than than the Germans, they spoke mostly Yiddish. They moved into these tenement quarters where there had already been a structure of Jewish life by this time. There was there was already a Jewish community on the Lower East Side. There were there were synagogues. Yeah, and as a Jewish minority in the late nineteenth century. In addition, what you would need that community for was a place where you could find kosher food. And let's just break this down to make sure that everybody understands. What exactly do you mean by kosher food? Kosher means specific religious dietary laws that are derived from the Torah, dictating what foods can be eaten, different kinds of meats can be eaten. Um, It also dictates what foods can even be eaten together. Mm-hmm. Shellfish, for instance, you, is is not permitted, but, and this will come into the story, there are some fish that are, including tuna, salmon, and herring. So were the previous Jewish residents of the Lower East Sides following kosher rules? Were they eating kosher? Yes, but this first wave of German immigrants quickly assimilated, thus finding kosher products was sometimes difficult before the 1870s. This new group, these Eastern Europeans, these Russians and Polish immigrants, such an overwhelming number of them that by demand, a kosher food industry in New York was developed. And this kosher food, the whole industry that was then developing here in the late 19th century, also was connecting them in a way to their homeland. Oh, yeah. And to each other. And yeah, so that, and actually that's important because as you mentioned, you know, they're, they're all from different areas 
of Europe. They're connected by by tradition and by religion and by language in many cases, but they're spread out. And creating a kosher food industry would unite these people from different groups who would then be living side by side here in these densely populated neighborhoods. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that these food traditions here in the Lower East Side form the backbone of the modern American Jewish identity. So then by the late 19th century, you have like, what, bakers, you have butchers in the Lower East Side? By the 1880s, dozens of bakeries and butchers selling kosher products in places owned by Eastern European Jewish immigrants. In 1890 alone, there were 43 Jewish-owned bakeries. And then a decade later, in 1900, there were 70 Jewish-owned bakers, and almost all of them were here in the Lower East Side. And most of those bakeries were operating along Hester Street or Rivington. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Isn't which that is extraordinary? An, it's yeah. an amazing thing you have to contemplate. <laughs> and probably they all kind of had their own individual style of bagel. Yeah, they all had like a, a, a little twist on the bagel, pretty much, right? If you will. These products were, they were in such high demand that the jobs in many of these bakeries ended up being rather low wage. The kitchen, just imagine this, the kitchens in these basement tenements, what the conditions must have been. They were cramped, extremely unpleasant, quite hot, especially when, you know, the oven is running. And during the summer. And during the summer, the young men who were working there, and they were, in fact, mostly men, would have 14-hour days making not just bagels, but other Jewish bread products like rye bread or sisal bread, challah bread. The biali, which is kind of like the bagel, but it's baked, not boiled. And then, of course, you had matzah. Matzah, which makes me think of Passover, which, again, brings brings up the point that many of these breads probably have um, a link to certain religious holidays. Oh, yeah. I mean, they weren't making like Little Debbie snack cakes down here. They were making foods that had very potent religious connections. And still do to this day. But what's interesting is the bagel is a little bit of a breakout. As I'll speak about later, by the 1950s and 60s, with with revolutions in food production, the bagel would go secular. Kind of like Christmas or yoga. (laughs) (laughs) But we're walking around the Lower East Side in the late 19th century. Mm -hmm. I'm walking along Hester Street. I kind of like see... A lot of action, guys going up and down stairs into basements, uh, people coming out for a little fresh air, so much bagel baking activity. Mm -hmm. But where would I actually buy a bagel? Could I just head into one of those basement bakeries? No, no. They were mostly sold on the street. There were food vendors lining up all along the streets of the Lower East Side, selling all sorts of products, but... Often, if you wanted a bagel, you would head towards a vendor that would maybe have like a dozen bagels on a stick. Kind of like I mean, you can buy a pretzel today from a cart. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a tradition that traces back to this period. You know, one appeal of the bagel uh, versus, say, like um, just like a regular loaf of bread was that it was relatively small. It was handheld, portable, had a denser quality, so you kind of filled up a little bit more. Uh, it served as a meal in itself, and you could often eat it plain or perhaps with a little butter or some other kosher alternative. 
Are you referring to like a bagel sandwich of sorts? By, and I don't mean like a breakfast sandwich. I don't think <laughs> no. that they have like <laughs> eggs and cheese on a toasted everything. No. But could I get a bagel sandwich with like lox and cream cheese? Well, yeah, you would start seeing this into the early 20th century here. Now, neither lox nor cream cheese are, are Eastern European customs. You won't even see these, you know, traditionally being eaten uh, in these European countries today. Lox, the word lox is derived from a Yiddish word for salmon. Now, as with all food history, it's really hard to produce the very first time someone put a bagel lox combo together. We'll really never know that. But part of what may have given birth to this was the rise of the appetizing store. The most famous one that is still in the Lower East Side today is Russ and Daughters, which opened in 1914. On Houston Street. Yeah. And we did an entire Lower East Side culinary walking tour a few yeah. years ago in which we stopped into Russ and Daughters um, and we talked about the appetizing store. But can you remind us what an appetizing store actually sells? It's a type of Jewish food shop that specializes in cold appetizers. By the early 20th century, these stores actually sold a lot of salmon and salmon products due to the plentifulness of this kind of fish in American waters. In addition, a lot of street vendors also sold salmon or lox. It would often be quite salty. So then pairing it with a bagel and eventually with cream cheese uh, would sort of like dim that saltiness and would create a more well-rounded, delicious taste. So pretty soon all these things pretty much got combined by the early mid-20th century. So by the 1930s and 40s, a bagel with a schmear has never been more popular. But with some exceptions, bagels were not making appearances in non-Jewish neighborhoods. And by this point in the 20th century, most bagels that were being baked in New York City were being baked by members of one very small but very strong union. We'll get to the story of the bagel in 20th century New York after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. 
I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. So we left off with people eating bagels in the early 20th century, but the places that were making those bagels back in the late 19th century were not great places to work. So maybe let's rewind and look a little bit more closely at this bakery, shall we? Yes, most of which were along Hester Rivington, and most of which had workers baking away for 13 or 14 hours a day, seven days a week. As you mentioned, there were so many people coming in uh, who were looking for jobs who were happy to get a job. But this was backbreaking work. And if they did complain, well, there were plenty of new arrivals who were willing to take their jobs. So when did these bakers fight back? When did, when did they start organizing against this? Well, they, they were organizing in the 1880s and 90s. An early bakers union called the Jewish Bakers Local 31 was formed in 1885, but it didn't really catch on and it disappeared until 1890 when it was restarted. They got the word out that their products were being baked by a union, that these were union bagels and union loaves Mm -hmm. by putting a very small circular or square piece of paper uh, pasted onto the baked good. Uh, to let them know that it had been baked by a union baker. Stamp of approval. And did they have the support of the community? Well, um, they would eventually. uh, But remember that the bagel industry, because it was mostly being sold and consumed in these different enclaves, right? It was kind of like a closed market. The bakers themselves, who were toiling away, were Jewish. Uh, the bosses were Jewish, who ran the bakeries, and the customers were Jewish. So there was a sense, eventually, that by supporting the bakery staff and the, the bakers, it meant, uh, you know, that, okay, it was a slightly more expensive bagel, but you were actually raising the living standards for the entire community. How long did they continue baking these union bagels? Well, that union only lasted about three years because the economy slipped into a depression in 1893. And once again, people were desperate for work. So that's a, you know, that that's a tricky time for workers who are trying to exert their rights when people are lined up behind them trying to get their jobs. So once again, there were no bagel laws. Well, there was there was some outcry, especially because people were working in these terrible conditions and it was seen as potentially really unsanitary, you know, that they were making these bagels and loaves of bread in these really dirty conditions and people were eating them and maybe getting sick from them. This caused New York State to pass the Bake Shop Act of 1895. That regulated, you know, maximum number of hours for employees. It it prohibited, among other things, employees from sleeping in the bakeries themselves. So imagine that people were actually sleeping down there. Well, if you're working 14 hours. Yeah. You know, seven days a week. But if you consider that there are also rats in there and that there's, you know, just cockroaches and grime, not to mention like, you know, bagels rising next to your head. But those bake shop laws would be 
challenge by the owners of the bakery. And that would go all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which would rule them unconstitutional in 1904. So once again, there were no laws. This led to strikes in August of 1905. And it actually led to more exposés in the press about these bad conditions in the bakeries. So it did lead to like, you know, the, the word getting out that things were really unsanitary and actually dangerous for consumers. Here's an article from the New York Tribune on August 13th, 1905. Headline, Bake Shops Filthy. The strike of the kosher bakers on the east side is likely to bring about reforms that will be of great benefit to the health of the city, whether the boss bakers give in or succeed in breaking the strike. Eastsiders have always known that their bread was baked in unhealthy, unsanitary underground hovels and in a manner contrary to the factory laws and the ordinances of the Board of Health. The strike has served to bring the bakeries as well as the bakers before the public, and conditions have been exposed which the state and city authorities cannot overlook. It would take a couple years, but finally, after much organizing, Jewish bakers would come together to form Local 100 in 1908 and would go on strike in May of 1909, Greg, 110 years ago this right month. Right now, yes. They'd go on strike to demand better working conditions. And the strike would get quite violent. I found an article in the New York Times from May 30th, 1909. Headline, Bake Shop Wrecked. Striking bakers and their sympathizers to the number of about 2,000 descended upon a bake shop at 68 and 70 Rivington Street last night, wrecked the place and mobbed the proprietor and half a dozen union men. The shop was assailed again and again by showers of stones. And in the crush, 12 people were injured. 2,000 men rioting on, on Rivington. Throwing stones in a bakery. The strikers had some powerful people and organizations on their side, including the Jewish Forward, um, which mm-hmm. was writing editorials about workers' rights, about how supporting these bakers was good for the entire community. And this Jewish newspaper, their headquarters were down on East Broadway, just a couple, just a few blocks from all of these bake shops. The Forward was instrumental in urging its readers to only buy union bread. So they were really applying pressure to the community to to support the strike. After seven weeks of striking, the bakery bosses finally relented and the strike was over. And this was seen, this strike from 110 years ago, was seen as a major moment in labor history on the Lower East Side. And it would actually inspire other industries to push for their rights, including the garment workers. Oh, yeah. Most of whom were also Jewish and lived in the Lower East Side. And most of whom ate bagels. By 1915, the union had succeeded in in securing 36 contracts with bakeries in New York and New Jersey. And by that, I mean that those bakeries, those 36 bakeries, only used union bakers. And so how long would this victory be felt? How long would this union stay around? For for decades. Oh. And this really does bring us up to where you left us before with the growing popularity of the bagel. Mm-hmm. Because of the union, bagel making in New York would actually hardly change until the middle of the 20th century. This union would mandate that the bagels would continue to be produced by hand, rolled out and shaped into a ring 
boiled and baked by hand. It was, you know, a rather intricate series of steps that no machine until the 1960s would be able to replicate. So this one bagel union had enormous power and influence on what a bagel was. Yeah, and that bagel union in 1937 would actually become its own independent union called the Bagel Bakers Local 338. It was a small union. Uh, It only had about 300 members at its height. And many of those members got in because of family connections. You know, they were the son or they were the nephew mm-hmm. of somebody who was already in the oh, union. Yeah. I know how it works. <laughs> and the union boss, who was called the, the business agent, would dictate where you worked. So you had to kind of like work your way up uh, the ladder and put in your time. And those first years could be really laborious for you. And you were very well paid for this compared to other bakery jobs in the city. But it was still really grueling work because you were standing for like nine hours a day and rolling out sometimes up to 700 bagels an hour. Hand rolling 700 bagels an hour. Yes. First of all, it sounds like people are eating bagels all over New York City by oh, this point. Yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. They to, were to sell that many. Especially, you know, by the 1950s and early 1960s, the the bagel is going mainstream. But these hand-rolled bagels, about 250,000 of which were being produced per day by 1960 by the by the union. These were hand-rolled bagels that are smaller than many of the bagels you might see today, the kind of coffee cart variety mm-hmm. of bagels, which tend to be larger and, dare I say, puffier. Yes. These were harder and smaller, but chewier and with a nice hard crust and absolutely delicious. By the 1950s here, where are you buying bagels? Because there are Jewish neighborhoods all over New York City, Mm -hmm. and I'm sure there are many more opportunities to sell bagels. Well, and a new revolution took place in the bagel industry in the 1950s when bakeries realized that they could actually sell bagels directly to consumers. They could sell their own hot bagels, like out of a window, You know, and there would be a line of people waiting to buy them. Up until this point, people were producing, you know, in these basement bakeries, they were producing bagels that would be sold wholesale Mm -hmm. to markets or to delis or to specialty food stores. But they weren't being sold individually to consumers. So you can imagine how this change in the 50s and 60s of the the bagel shop selling directly to the consumer. It sounds so obvious to us today because that's how we buy our bagels. Yes, we all. That's how we know. That's how we consume bagels today. Right. But many of us buy loaves of bread, you know, that are baked elsewhere. We buy all kinds of things that are baked in other places. So that's how bagels had been sold to consumers before. So this is a big revolution that takes place that contributes to the growing popularity and the mainstreaming of the bagel. Outside of Jewish communities, to all New Yorkers. These bagels being sold through all five boroughs in so many neighborhoods are still being strictly controlled by this union, even by the 1960s? Well, it wasn't exactly smooth sailing, especially in the 1950s. Uh, There was a seven-week strike in 1951 that shut down 31 of the city's bagel bakeries. Uh, it was That was covered in the Times, but listen to this clip. From December 17th, 1951, headline, Bagel Famine Threatens in City, Labor Dispute Puts Hole in Supply. 
Okay, so they're just... <laughs> they're making puns even then. The metropolitan area was threatened with a bagel famine yesterday as 32 of the city's 34 bagel bakeries remained closed in a dispute between 300 members of Local 338 of AFL and the Bagel Bakers Association. This was bad news for addicts of the bagel. Parentheses pronounced bagel, spelled B-A-Y-G-L-E. So like... The Times actually here in this article has to explain to people hmm. how to pronounce a bagel. So, yes, it's gone mainstream, but maybe the Times editors aren't so sure that a reader <laughs> knows what a bagel is. Next paragraph. A spot check of bakeries showed their shelves empty of bagels, which resembled donuts, only in that they both have no center. Assuming that most of their readers had no idea what these were, actually. Right. It goes on and on. Only two small bagel producers, one in the Bronx and the other on the Lower East Side, continued the output of the glazed surfaced roll with the firm white dough. Shopkeepers and restaurant owners reported that substitutes such as toasted seeded rolls, Bialystok rolls, which have a depressed center sprinkled with onions, and egg bagels, a sweeter variety but not the McCoy, were being thrown into the bagel void with varying degrees of reception. (laughs) But clearly there is no bagel union of this particular sort today that has such a, a stranglehold on the bagel industry. So what happened to them? What happened? The bagel machine happened. Yeah, so this was invented in 1962 by a man named Daniel Thompson, which allowed for a large number of bagels to be produced with very little manpower. Now, Daniel Thompson, he was the inventor of the bagel-making machine. Mm -hmm. Do you know what other great invention that Daniel Thompson gave to the world? He he gave us the bagel-making machine. He also gave us the foldable ping-pong table. Whoa. I didn't see that one coming. Before, yes, the same man invented both of these things. Before, um, yeah. Um, Imagine, I mean, he just freed up space in dens across the world. (laughs) These machines were just so much more efficient. According to a bagel maker named Miles Edelstein, um, who was profiled in 2003 in the New York Times, quote, a machine could roll 300 dozen bagels an hour with one man operating it, while two experienced hand rollers could only produce 125 dozen in the same amount of time working together. So it was just like many times more efficient. Well, now I kind of see what happened to the bagel union because this cannot be good news for them. No, and they were wrestling with whether or not they should just acquiesce, you know, and accept the fact that technology was there. So maybe they could actually influence the bosses still and set rules for the people working the bagel machines. You know, they could still have a presence. In the end, the union voted for leadership that didn't want to adapt to the new machines and the union ended up suffering. Many of the bakers, seeing the change was on the horizon, moved off to other cities. Uh, They started their own bagel-making operations, many of them using machines. And bakery owners, you know, needed to cut their own costs. They needed to start using the machines. The the union wouldn't let them use the machines. And so in February of 1967, the bakery owners actually locked out these union workers who in turn picketed outside their their bakeries. Bakers ended up leaving the union. 
other bakeries stopped working with the union. Finally, in 1971, the union merged with another baker's union and ceased to exist. By that point in 1971, the entire bagel marketplace had changed. Now that explains how the bagel industry grew and soon developed millions upon millions of bagels, but it doesn't explain the popularity of the bagel throughout the United States. For that, we can thank a Polish immigrant by the name of Harry Linder, who immigrated to the United States in 1927, but would settle in West Haven, Connecticut. And there he would open a place called New York Bagel Bakery. Now, today you can go far and wide to uh, every city in the United States and find some place with a similar name, New York Bagel Bakery. I mean, I even operated (laughs) one myself in Ohio. Okay, it already like was sort of associated with a very specific place. Now, the New York Bagel Bakery would in later years be operated by his sons, Murray and Marvin, the Lender Brothers. Lender would, at first, would handroll, would make his own bagels here in Connecticut and sell them to local grocery stores and restaurants, but could only travel, obviously, very regionally here. You know, he owned the market here in around West Haven. And you only have four or five hours before they go stale. Yeah, exactly. That's a problem. So meanwhile, while he's making those and coming up with and trying to solve this problem, after World War II, on, on the national level, corporations were making huge strides in preserved and frozen foods, which allowed for the expansion of grocery stores and the birth of the supermarket, which all opened up in these newly developed American suburbs. I love this part of the story, Greg. <laughs> yeah. Well, and strides, you like when I say the words strides and refrigeration storage. Uh, and, can we talk about <laughs> trucking? And trucking and transportation. That was the next thing I was going to say. This resulted in the explosion of frozen foods, which were things like TV dinners, frozen vegetables, ice cream, meat products. There was, in fact, we have a New York inventor named Clarence Birdseye to thank uh, for developing the process of flash freezing, which allowed perishables to actually stay fresh for a longer period. So the Lender family must have looked very favorably upon these new innovations in uh, food production and transportation. Yeah, I mean, Harry Lender bought his first freezer for bagels in the 1950s, but it was his sons who expanded the operation in the 1960s and then began shipping out frozen bagels to the nation. So the lenders could ship these bagels far and wide because they were frozen. Yeah. And people could find them in these new supermarkets Mm -hmm. all over the country which had the result of secularizing the bagel because now they could be bought anywhere, not just in Jewish communities or cities with large Jewish populations. Consumers began eating bagels in the same manner in which they would eat toast. Although ironically, at first, the appeal to many suburban shoppers is that the bagel was an ethnic food. It was Mm. considered ethnic in the 70s, and it was during the 70s when the mass production of ethnic foods became trendy. Right. So the bagel was kind of part of that. And when you say that they would eat it like they would eat toast, and that is literally because kind of like an ego, a lender's bagel could be taken directly out of the freezer and popped into a toaster. Yeah, and you could, let's say, put cream cheese upon that, which was also experiencing a parallel revolution in the United States. So the 
manufacture of cream cheese is actually quite old. It dates back to 1872 and to Chester, New York. Uh, the dairyman William Lawrence began first manufacturing it there and inspired a cream cheese manufacturing craze in New York State. By 1880, some of uh, this Chester cheese was repackaged and renamed Philly cream cheese. Oh, wait. Philadelphia cream cheese comes from New York? Yes. Yes. It actually has nothing to do with Philadelphia, although um, like it wasn't made there. Some say it's a nod to Philadelphia, New York, but I don't, I don't see any connections. I think it was just to give the name some pop. Kraft then bought the brand in the late 1920s. So then by the 1950s, you know, Kraft is a huge corporation because they're into all these processed foods and they're well positioned in the grocery store revolution to market cream cheese as the de facto spread for this other new object that's popping up in the, in the supermarket, the bagel. We should add that Lenders bagels come sliced today. That's right. Uh, because, you know, in those early years when b- these bagels were frozen, they were unsliced. And when people would slice into these frozen pieces of bread, you know, the knife would slip and they would you know, cut themselves. So right. so they had to change that. And they, ev- they eventually packaged them as frozen sliced bagels, which I think is, can be quite offensive to many sort of native bagel eaters. So we have really covered the gamut here. We've gone from hand-rolled bagels to a frozen sliced (laughs) bagel. Now, do you remember how big bagels were in the 1980s when they really became trendy? It was even associated with eating healthy. Uh, Oh, yeah, because there was no fat. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Right. And so we didn't yeah. care about like calories or carbs, no. but it, there was no fat in there. So it even spawned an industry of bagel sandwich shops, pizza bagels, which were actually invented in 19 in the 1970s, bagel bites. And actually the bagel industry is still growing. We have not seen the the, we, the, the peaking of the bagel industry is nowhere in sight. I want to make mention of uh, one of your fav- favorite bagel places, H&H Bagel. My old partner. Um, which is a little bit different than many of the other places we've talked about. It was started in 1972 by two Puerto Rican businessmen, Helmer Toro and Hector Hernandez. That is the H's in ah. H&H Bagel. Oh, Helmer and Hector. Now, this company has traveled a rocky road, needless to say. But for a time, it was at, they were actually New York's largest bagel manufacturers. And while that initial business has since closed, there are two places in Manhattan that are still named H&H Bagel. We should mention that you can still buy and enjoy a delicious hand-rolled bagel today at a number of bagel bakeries still around bagel bakeries where you can actually walk in they make them they bake them and you can even enjoy them there Mm -hmm. the list is long and we probably don't want to venture forth into um our favorite bagel bakeries greg there's Um, so i mean there's there's so many every every new york neighborhood i think has at least one if not eight or nine signature bagel shops one that we both loved for many, many years back in the old neighborhood was Kosar's, which made Bialis, which we briefly mentioned before, and also Bagels. That originally opened in 1936 and was reopened in 2016 on Grand Street at Essex and makes fabulous hand-rolled bagels. 
But now we have sort of talked around the bagel, um, but we haven't really described like how to properly really make a bagel, mm-hmm. the, the process, the challenges, whether the water makes any difference. So we went to one of our favorite bagel places, the aforementioned Essa Bagel, to meet with Melanie Frost to discuss their own New York City bagel story. So we have the pleasure now of sitting here at Essa Bagel on 51st and 3rd Avenue with Melanie Frost, who is the Chief Operating Officer of Essa Bagel. Welcome, Melanie. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Thank you for having us. Um, We just want to describe the bustling, busy bagel shop. This is sort of a bagel capital of Midtown, I would even say, actually. I used to come here all the time when I worked over on 55th Street. It's past 1030, but it is like packed in here. We're tucked, uh, uh, we're tucked into a corner in the back of the restaurant, and there is a line that is snaking through the center of, of the restaurant as people are waiting to step up and yell their, their order over the counter to, to some people who are working uh, the grills in the back and slicing and toasting bagels for people. Essa Bagel has been, a, has been a, a bagel player here in New York City for, for quite a while. Could you give us the, the history of the company and how it formed? From? Absolutely. So about 40-plus years ago, 1976, it was established. My aunt, actually my uncle, owned a donut shop in Brooklyn, and they weren't renewing the lease, and he had three kids to support. And my aunt, who was a sister, and also my mother, sister, said, don't worry about it, we're going to figure something out. So they literally combed the papers looking for some type of business and they saw a bagel shop and they said donuts bagels they both have holes we'll figure it out (laughs) (laughs) so it was a it was a bagel shop that was for sale on uh, what the east side of manhattan yep and my aunt really it, it was like her baby you know and basically what happened was they started to drive the business i mean the first store was on 21st and first and here's the other part of it is that so she met a baker and he gave her the recipe, and he said, you know, the flour might be more expensive, but you're going to have the best bagel in New York City. What ended up happening was, as they were proofing the bagel, which is when like, they're preparing it, right. it rose a little too much. So then when it went in the oven, it was the, became this huge bagel. <laughs> the biggest bagel and in New York. The biggest bagel in New York. <laughs> and everyone just loved it. I mean, it's chewy on the inside, crusty on the outside. It's like the perfect thing. There's nothing like... A hot bagel out of the oven from Essa Bagel. And they stuck with that recipe? And they stuck with that recipe ever since, yes. How long did it take your family to kind of get get in the bagel swing of things? Yeah, I think my aunt really, I mean, she worked day and night. I'm talking, she didn't come home. I mean, literally, she was a teacher, full-time teacher. And then she went to the store and literally didn't, I mean, really never slept. They basically pounded the pavement. I mean, you had Stuyvesant Town and Peter Cooper right there. They literally sent flyers, went out there. And just literally just worked it that way. So it took some time, but then it became just a New York institution. She really has created an iconic New York bagel. You know, everyone just turns to us a bagel. And you said the original location was at 21st and 1st. And it was there during the 90s, right? Yes. Okay, it, that, was, that was where I had my first bagel, was oh, at that location. Okay. And that location's still open? Yes, that location's still open. We uh, opened across the street. Yes, okay. currently still there. Uh, but you also have a few other locations, including uh, including here in Midtown. Here yes. In Lex- 
So we're here um, on 51st and 3rd. We just opened about two weeks ago. Another Essa Bagel on 32nd Street between 6th and 7th Avenue, right down the block from Penn Station, Madison Whoa. Square Garden. And then we also just recently, um, with the new Amazon Go store, uh, we have our bagels and schmears there as well. <laughs> so, so you can just walk in, grab one, and leave. Correct. It's grab and go. And when you make these bagels, are you hand rolling them or is this a process using a machine? Because we talked about that quite a bit on the show. Oh, absolutely hand rolled. Um, you, you can't see the eye roll. Listener. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There, to me, an authentic bagel has to be hand rolled. Let me tell you, it's a skill. Yeah. It's not something easily done. We've had people with us for years. It takes a while just to learn how to do that. They're hand rolled, they're boiled, they're baked. Fresh daily on the premises all day long. Could you kind of walk us through that process a little sure. bit? Because before you mentioned proofing the bagel. Yes. Without, of course, you know, revealing trade secrets. <laughs> but yeah, if you give us sort of generally. She already kind of did reveal a trade secret. <laughs> but sort of just generally what the process sure. is from from sort of start to it comes out of the oven. From start to starch. Yes. From start to <laughs> start Exactly. To starch. So the ingredients are delivered. You know, we've got, you know, your flour, your malt. Every, first of all, and my aunt prided herself on this, they're all natural ingredients. No preservatives, no cholesterol, mm. no fat. I mean, literally, it was all natural ingredients. And actually, We would recognize all of these ingredients. Yes. <laughs> and in addition to the bagels are all made with a ton of love. That was really the secret element to it all. You know, this is run like a family and we continue to do it that way. But basically the, the process is, you know, all these ingredients are put in a mixer. Uh, they're made in the mixer that, to create the dough. And then they're hand rolled. And then they're proofed, which is when they sit in... You know, the walk-in box, they have to sit for a while to so, make sure so that you, they... you form these bagels. Yes, correct. And you put them on trays. Correct. And then you wheel them into a refrigerator. Correct. And they and stay there for a certain period of time. Yeah, that does something because to the flavor? Because they have to, yeah, they, I mean, they have to sort of um, set. I, I, one, one thing I will say is that you'll never see the same bagel. I mean, when you talk about sure, commercially yeah. made bagels, it's like that, to me, it's like, it's like a slice of bread. I, I don't even understand. You know, this, everything is is authentic because every hand-rolled bagel, I mean, one has a little hole, the other one does. You know, this one's made a certain way, so you never get the same thing. So, so they've been proofing in the fridge for correct. overnight. Yes, correct. correct. And then you take them out. Yes, and you take them out, bring them up, and we put them in the kettle for a certain period of time. Uh, very Melanie short. is pointing at the, at the window over to uh, our right. Our bo- yes, we boil. We can see steam coming up from big pots, and so they're dropping those proofed bagels into the pots. Exactly. And so how long, yeah, how long do they do you boil them? Probably not for too long. Not for too long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's about a minute, 30 seconds. It depends, you know. They float when they're they ready. They float when they're ready, yes. And, they, and basically from there, they're put onto the planks, mm-hmm. the wooden planks, and then they're seasoned with different seeds. So we have everything from, you know, the plain bagel to the everything bagel to the sesame, um, nine grain, um, you know. Onion. So, Certain bagels are made with different flour, so, you know, yeah. but uh, the whole wheat, the whole wheat, everything, the cinnamon raisin, we're purists, though. We don't really do the rainbow bagel, the blueberry, although we do do. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> thank God. It doesn't surprise me. <laughs> although we do on St. Patrick's Day do make it a green bagel, and it's just, you know, yeah. it's food, food dye. Uh-huh. It's food dye. Yeah. Coloring. But then they're seasoned, and then and they're on those planks. 
do they hang out there for a long time again or do they just go right in the oven? No, they go right in mm-hmm. the oven and okay. then they're out. Then they're in the oven for a certain period of time and probably about 20 25 minutes and then basically they um and also has to be at a certain temperature so when a person is eating a bagel what they're actually eating is something that's actually the process began the day before right i mean how i mean how long is overall yeah it's a a 24-hour process but the really the baking itself like that has to happen right away right yeah and And can you eat it right away when it comes out of the oven i mean it's gonna be hot it's gonna be really hot although there's nothing like it um i would say you know you just have to wait till it cools down maybe a minute you know okay yeah yeah and what are the sort of popular ways in which bagels are are your customers how do they like them obviously there's a million different ways to make bagels where the sort of the popular ways sort of modern in 2019 sure well first of all i also want to mention that i mean the most popular bagels are the plain and the everything really the everything that's great (laughs) isn't that your favorite well i know actually i like the plain because i like i like to like trick it out with the the toppings and stuff like that you know but like some people like the bagel itself to have all the sort of bells and whistles yes Yes, yeah, a, a lot of people do. Yeah, yeah. And then as far as preparing them, I mean, we have what we call our bagel favorites. So we have our signature sandwich, which is like your classic bagel with a scallion cream cheese, Nova, which is which is lox, but it's, it's Nova is the not salty. Belly lox is salty. So when people uh-huh. say lox, they really mean Nova. Capers, lettuce, tomato, and onion. And there's nothing like that. That That's the Whoa. classic favorite. I mean, and you can have that for lunch. Absolutely. I mean, although, I mean, that I mean that sounds like a kind of a, a modern construction. A lot of that it, like, does trace back, you know, almost like a hundred years. Uh, yes. You know, like the, yes. the lox <laughs> and some of the cream cheese added. So it's like, it's just sort of like an adjustment of the traditional bagel, which yes. sounds delicious. Yeah. Because, I mean, people had it with plain cream cheese which you can do but you know we have now over 25 flavors and we also have tofu spreads oh and they are delicious so when people here's a technical question when people ask for a bagel with a schmear uh-huh. if they just say a schmear what do you take that as i take that as like plain cream cheese just, just a, a yeah. schmear cream cheese just a schmear cream cheese okay now a question slash ermine legend about bagels is that the secret to new york bagels is the water now so we want to get at least your your thoughts on that is is that a true statement is that possible is that possibly true i'm going to take it from my aunt who never thought so and her biggest difference like i said is made with a lot of love that's the ingredient that makes the difference but truly it's not just the water you know again there are no preservatives there's no cholesterol no fat and we haven't tested it yet i mean certainly you know if you go outside of new york the water is not the same so it does have some the water's pretty soft here yes it is it is but i don't think anyone's really tested it to see we forgot to ask you about the name and what what the name essabagel means is there a story there just you know that it's my aunt wanted to have something that connected to her judaism and jewish culture so s in yiddish means eat so eat a bagel. Eat a bagel. <laughs> eat a bagel. Yeah. I think, Greg, maybe just, we should eat a bagel. Yeah. I, I, I think so, too. I always thought, at least when I was, I always used to say, like, S, a bagel. That's a bagel. Right. That is a bagel. That's what I thought. Which I guess is more Italian, but anyway. That's that's kind of eat a bagel. Eat a bagel. There you go. Well, Melanie, thank you so much for taking the time to meet with us. Oh, yes. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was wonderful. 
Thank you to Melanie for giving us this, in many ways, like lifetime dream of being surrounded by bagels in all their many different shapes and sizes. And we'd also like to apologize to all the other types of bagels that are produced in all the other cities out there, especially Montreal. Those are good bagels. Great bagels. You've got great bagels. You have a very faithful clientele. But today, we really just focused on New York as, dare we say, the capital of the bagel. The center of the bagel world to this day. Visit our website, BarryBoysHistory.com, where we'll have pictures and images of bagel bakeries galore. That's BoweryBoysHistory.com. You can also join us at Patreon.com slash BoweryBoys, where for a small monthly amount, you can help support the show as Greg and I devote all of our time to producing new episodes of the Bowery Boys. We couldn't do this. We couldn't explore the history of the bagel without you. You'll be joining patrons such as GMS, Lily M, Scott D, Rick W, and Lucas from Manhattan. Emmanuel C, Beth F, Dana V, and Joe R from Brooklyn, Kathleen O and Margie M from New Jersey, Diana M from North Carolina, Stacy from Utah, Jake from Alabama, Ralph C from Virginia, Cynthia R from Tennessee, Clifford W and Kathleen R from California, Leslie BK from England, and Michael BL from Denmark. Thank you to all of you from all of those different places, all of whom have their own bagel preferences. Yes. Thank you all for your support on Patreon. To join them and to join us, head to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Bowery Boys. And there you'll find out about the patron-only podcast that we produce called the Bowery Boys Movie Club. This month's selection will be celebrating the 50th anniversary of one of the most notorious New York City films of all time, John Voight and Dustin Hoffman in Midnight Cowboy. As we mentioned earlier, Greg and I will also be appearing at the New York Historical Society on June 5th, interviewing George Chauncey, the author of Gay New York, a groundbreaking book on gay history in New York City. Just in time for the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots and New York's World Pride Celebration. For tickets, head to nyhistory.org. And finally, it's springtime, and we encourage you to go out and take a Bowery Boys walk. Head over to BoweryBoysWalks.com to see the different walking tours that we've put together with some of the best tour guides in the city. We've got walks on the history of Central Park, Edith Wharton's New York, Broadway's Hidden History, Greenwich Village History, and a tour of the World's Fairground of 1939 and 64. Head to com. So thank you very much for joining us on the History of the Bagel. We hope that we have made you hungry. (laughs) For history and for bagels. For everything. Thank you for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So... No, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.